My next guest has worked with many of North America's premier sports brands. The Toronto Raptors, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, the Florida Panthers, the Miami Dolphins, and the Canadian Olympic Committee. Today, my guest is now leading Toronto's first professional esports team, Toronto Defiant, of the Overwatch League as part of the new ownership group, Overactive Media Group. Please welcome to the show, Chris Overholt. Hey. Thanks for your time. <laughs> Good to see you. Good to the, see you. These are, as they see, these are very busy days. Uh, yeah, they are. They are. Um, you know, in the early days, uh, you know, just five months ago, uh, they were busy because there were only a couple of us. But um, we've got a few more bodies on hand right now, but the days are getting fuller with different things. And uh, man, it's fun. It's great fun. Would you have ever thought 20 years ago when uh, I think you started your first foray into professional sports that this would be part of that journey? No, I'd, you know, I'm not sure it would have been true even, um, you know, six months ago. I'd, you know, I, I kind of stumbled into this uh, based on a longtime great relationship I had with our chairman, Sheldon Pollock. And, and um, you know, I'd had a look at this going back to 2016 in a different context. But yeah, look, you know, I didn't grow up thinking I was going to be in the professional sports business either. I wasn't really sure. I was talking to somebody about it yesterday. I mean, I can imagine, uh, I think heading out of university or heading out of high school into university, I was imagining I might be a teacher. Uh, for a while, I thought about maybe being a lawyer, but I certainly uh, never imagined I'd be in pro sports, let alone esports. So yeah. it's a whole new world. Yeah. So, so you went to Western, Western University in yeah. London, Ontario. Um, like, what was your first thing out of, out of school? Uh, I started with London Life Insurance Company. So I moved back to Toronto out of, uh, out of London. I actually took a year off. So I went traveling and, uh, and spent some time with a backpack on my back for, uh, for a year. And then I came back to Toronto. My parents were living in Mississauga at the time, so I checked into their place for a few months and uh, started working at a restaurant again. And then um, a few friends of mine uh, had already taken up with the general sales division of London Life. So uh, I was approached by, uh, by a guy named John McVeigh, who was building out a sales team. And he was a Western grad, and all the people that he had hired were Western grads. And and so uh, I got introduced into this group, and six or so months later, I was hired into London Life. And I did that for six and a half years. So selling life insurance. Selling life insurance. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I was... Uh, that was, was my a, first gig. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, with yeah. Sun Life. <laughs> Hilarious. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, I did that. And, and um, you know, excellent training, really great yeah. training. And, um, you know, I came from a liberal arts background. I studied history at University of Western Ontario and at King's College, and and, um, and so, you know, I think, I think there's a great value to a liberal arts education that's rooted in kind of core communication skills, both mm -hmm. the written word and certainly many of those courses kind of taking the direction of seminars and, and, um, and workshops. And, um, and so I merged out of the university, I think, with um, fairly strong communication skills. And one of the things, as you know, the insurance company teaches you is how to be a strong communicator and how yeah. to build a story. And, and how to you know take a prospect down a path towards saying yes, and mm -hmm. and so I think it was a really great kind of indoctrination around sales discipline and principles. Uh, taught me not to be afraid of an audience. Taught me not to be afraid of the phone. Yeah. And uh, and uh, yeah, and uh, turned this into something altogether different. So. So how I'm really curious. How do you get from selling life insurance to mm -hmm. was it the Raptors that was your first professional yeah. sports game? How did that happen? Yeah, so you, uh, the way you do that is you have a friend who a starts friend a basketball franchise. <laughs> okay. So I went to school with Jordan Bitov, 
and uh, okay. we were friends when we were there together. We actually ran um, we ran two campaigns together. So a friend of mine, um, uh, a guy named Lauren Orris, uh, ran for uh, president of the University of Western Ontario that year, Students Council. And uh, Jordan and I didn't know each other, but Lauren recruited both of us separately to help him with his campaign. And it's the best time. I had so much fun, and I met Jordan and a few of um, a few of his crowd that I didn't know. And, uh, and we became fast friends in, in that time, and we stayed connected through the rest of our university time. And then we graduated, and as you do, you go off and do your own thing separately. He was going into his family's business, and I went off and sold life insurance. And uh, then one day, I had actually left the insurance business and gone to work for Digital Equipment of Canada. So for 15 months, I was actually selling hardware for digital. And the reason that's important is because that's when I met our current chairman, Sheldon Pollock. Oh my goodness. Who at the time owned Onyx Computer Resellers and they yes. were one of our channel repartner channel reseller partners. Oh wow. So I met Sheldon in those years, that 15 months I was at Digital. What was he doing there? Did he, he own? owned uh, he Onyx? Owned. Okay. Yeah. So um, so in that 15 months that I had, that brief time that I had in the computer hardware sales business, I met the guy that brought me into esports, esports. 25 years later. Wow. Crazy. But uh, anyway, uh, I was at Digital and I was humming along and kind of enjoying it, frankly. And, and uh, Jordan calls me one day and says, remind me again what it is that you do. And I told him and he, so, he said, so you're in sales. And I said, yeah, that's right. And he goes, well, we need some sales help over here. And you're the only guy I know that's still in sales. So my patience for the discipline and the art of sale and my uh, commitment to the idea of being a professional salesperson paid off in that moment. And I went over to the Raptors as a director of corporate partnerships and kind of learned sports marketing on the fly at the hands of a great guy named uh, Michael Downey and then later Richard Petty. Yeah. Um, but what I had and what they needed in that moment was kind of a great grounding in sales training okay. and the ability to uh, kind of motivate minds to action. So. Well, that is wild. That's a wild story. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, like literally, now, right? it's, it's, it's that time period that has set you up. Yeah, all the way throughout throughout your career. I spoke to uh, I spoke to a, a a Western Business School class in November, I think it was, and uh, I, honestly, I'm driving to London and I haven't prepared for the presentation. I've been traveling and um, I, I didn't really know what I was going to say to this group. I just knew that it was meant to be around my new gig and some of the lessons that I've learned over the years. And one of the things, uh, we had a great session. It was great fun, and, and it went really, really well, and it was all just kind of off the top of my head. But one of the things I said to them was, you know, you just, you never know. You never know the people you meet along the way and the relationships that you build along the way. You never know how important they're going to be. And Sheldon is, I think, the best example of that. I mean, Sheldon owned Onyx Computers with his partner, Phil. I was a salesperson in digital. And I met Sheldon maybe twice in that time. We got, we stayed connected over years and we were reintroduced to each other about six years ago. Um, but if not for that first interaction with him, I never would have had this opportunity. And it's just amazing to me the way life and, and relationships connect people. And, and really, um, you know, I, I just, I still can't believe it. And Sheldon and I get along great and it's been a great relationship from, from the first go. But... You just never know. I once heard Mitt Romney say that um, uh, every time you meet someone new, it's an opportunity for share. He was mm -hmm. he was talking about it in the context of running for president, and you know all that time you spend meeting and greeting people as as you're running for office, and and he was expressing it, it was in the context of expressing it as you know in that moment when you and I connect, I have a I have an opportunity to really gain share with you. I have the opportunity to build confidence, to um, you know lend you my thoughts as appropriate. 
for you and I to become of like mind around an issue or a topic or whatever it is, but it's an opportunity for me to connect. And what I said to the class that night is, you just never know as you go along in life how important even this, the most random relationships might prove to be if you treat them properly and honor them in that moment. And yeah. Sheldon's a great example of that for me, obviously. That is crazy. Are, are these, see, I'm really curious because I, I look back at my university days and I go, who am I still connected with? What have these people done? What have I done? Um, and, and it seems that over time you sort of lose touch with people and you, you start new circles of friends and, and, and associates and so on. Um, how have you managed, or, or is it just serendipitous that, that things just sort of come together and you reconnect with people? Like, how do you well, stay connected? I think you stay connected in large part because you make such a strong connection in the first place. So mm -hmm. Jordan and I built a great relationship, and over years I've come to know that family really well, and so I certainly count Tom and John as brothers, as friends as well. I don't know Nick quite as well. He's lived out of country most of the time that we've been uh, working, but... Um, yeah, I, I mean, your ability to stay connected to people, I think, is a function of how strong that connection is first and then how hard you both kind of work at it. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't always need to be an everyday kind of thing either. I think it's, it's when you connect, it's how you do it, and, and the circumstances around it, frankly, that aren't always in your control. But, um, you know, I have naturally been someone who tries to stay as connected as possible to my kind of group and as you get older it's harder I mean shit I mean my kids are 25 and 23 I have a hard time staying connected to them right now I have to seek them out sometimes but um, but you know I, I I've I think I've been successful along the way in part because the people around me have been so giving with their time and I've really tried to again always honor that I've had a ton of help right I've had so much help and, uh, and everybody's been so great about that. And so I just try to honor that as best I can as I go along. And if you, you know, it's the age old rule, you know, if you treat people the way you would like yeah. to be treated, it comes around. So that's so, that's so true. Um, while, you, while you were with the Raptors, uh, I don't know, you've, you've developed this concept of bold dominance. Yeah. Tell me you about read that, that somewhere. Yeah. You? Yeah. It wasn't, I, I can't take credit for it alone, but um, I'm always proud every time I go in the building. Uh, I'm not even sure it was original to us at that time, but um, uh, Michael Downey and I were, at the time, he was my boss. Um, Michael now runs Tennis Canada, and, um, and he was, I really learned package goods marketing at Michael's knee and Richard Petty's knee. Um, but we were sitting around one day, we knew we were going to have these LED signs installed in the building, and at the time it was relatively new technology. And at that time, we also had um, rotating Dorna signage on the court sides. And we were trying to figure out a way that we could package it all for the highest value. And we discovered together, I think, in that conversation um, that if we rotated everybody's signs all at once and could commit to, uh, you know, a cumulative minute package of, of dominance in that moment. So said another way, it wasn't a Best Buy sign sitting next to a Molson sign and sitting next to an Air Canada sign. It was a moment where Air Canada owned all the signage in the building. That was the concept of bold dominance. And honestly, I don't remember whether we saw that somewhere or whether we came up with it on our own. Um, it's hard to say. Um, but it was 1996, I can tell you. And today, in most of the major uh, arenas, it's kind, of the, it's kind of the concept that most go with. Certainly, it has remained true here at uh, now the Scotiabank Arena. So. Okay, wow. Um, and, and I guess it was a natural flow to go from 
the Raptors to the mothership of, uh, of MLSC. And I don't know whether it was around that time that um, the Leafs and the Raptors sort of came together. I can't remember when, when that happened. Yeah, the, the timing was, uh, again, right place, right time, yeah. honestly. So, you know, Richard Petty shows up. I had gone to work for the Bitoves, but John exited shortly after I arrived. Yeah. And then Richard Petty showed up as the president and CEO. So, you know, we all, all needed to prove ourselves again. And uh, again, with the help of my team and certainly with Michael's uh, support, I, I think we earned Richard's confidence fairly quickly. Um, I was, I had been doing partnership sales for about 18 months and, um, and Richard asked me to go downstairs and, and by downstairs, I meant literally physically downstairs because the sales team was down on the main floor of the building we were in. And he said, you know, we could really use professional sales leadership inside of that ticket sales group. And this was all at the time that the uh, Maple Leaf Sports came to be, that the Leafs bought the Raptors and we became MLSE. At the time, Richard was interim CEO, like mm -hmm. while we were all getting, getting our feet under us. So, um, so I agreed to go downstairs and do that. At the time, a guy named Steve Griggs was running the business and he was so gracious. He... He, he kind of brought me in and he taught me you know, the ticket sales business. He, he worked for me in that moment, but he really taught me that business. And, and, um, and you know, I, I kind of got us organized strategically and Steve and I together kind of built out the plan. And shortly thereafter, we had to move all the, the customers out of the Maple Leaf Gardens and into the new arena venue. Mm -hmm. We had to do that kind of virtually because the building, of course, was being built. So Steve ran that whole project for us. Um, so yeah, I end up in charge of ticket sales, uh, working with Steve and of course the great story on Steve is he's gone on to be the president and CEO of the Tampa Bay Lightning and, uh, he's had a great career and mm -hmm. is a, is a great leader and, uh, but yeah, we had a lot of good, good times in those days. That's for sure. And I, I think during your time there, you did, again, not just yourself, I'm sure you and your team developed this idea of premium seating and, and seat licensing, um, I remember from a, from yeah. a fan perspective, it was, oh my God, there's going to be no great seats available yeah. you know, to the, the quote-unquote blue-collar fans. But, but tell me about this, this idea of, of, of premium seating. Well, I don't, think we can, I don't think we can lay ownership or claim to ownership of the idea of premium seating. You know, I'll, I'll go all the way back to uh, John Bitov. I think it was the Charlotte, the Charlotte Panthers, Carolina Panthers mm -hmm. um, football club in the NFL, I think they were the ones I remember first launching a premium seat license. So the idea that you would pay basically like you were buying a piece of real estate. Yeah. Um, so you'd pay like a one-time fee and then you would own those seats and it gave you the right to transfer those seats to your, um, you know, to your brother, to your sister or sell them to a friend on the, on the open market. So I think it was Carolina that we saw do that first and John really liked that idea, John Bitov. So it was John, for example, that said right away, we're gonna have a seat license on the best seats around Raptors. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so as we started to sell those tickets, Steve first, and then uh, I joined Steve after that, um, <laughs> we, uh, you know, we had a big job to do, right? We had courtside seats that at that time, I think we were selling for $25,000 a seat license, which was unheard of. Um, we had uh, later when we became Ampli Sports and we were both teams in the building, you know, we had uh, we had to reprice all the all the leaf seats, and we put seat licenses on all the platinum seats at that time, and um, I think they started at ten thousand dollars, and and then over time, over the years that I was there, I you know I left after almost it was almost seven years, and I think one of the last things we did is we offered seat licenses as optional in the upper bowl 
Wow. So that if you wanted the ability to control your destiny and pass those seats like real estate to a family friend then or friend, you could do that. So uh, we drove a lot of seat license revenue out of all of it. We, um, we had 20, to my knowledge or memory, we had about 2,500 uh, uh, dual club seats, meaning you bought that seat for both the Leaf and the Raptors games. Okay. And we put seat licenses on those as well. So again, this was a lot of additional revenue for the club at that time. And of course, it was also at a time when the teams were really starting to play. You know, the Leafs made the final four in those last few years I was there twice. And the Raptors made the playoffs twice in the last couple of years I was there. And so, um, you know, we were, moving the, we were moving the season ticket price up pretty aggressively in those days and the yeah. playoff pricing and everything else as well. So, yeah, it was an interesting time. I, I, I can't say that we led the way in terms of premium seating strategy, but I think we were, for a while there, in standing that building up, we were on the front end of... Um, on kind of innovation and and always looking for ways to kind of maximize our seat our seat revenue. You, you've mentioned uh, Richard Petty a number of times, and um, over the past three years, he's he's come on this program a few times. Has he? Yeah, Great. to talk about his uh, his career in in, in sports. Um, we stayed away from what trades were made or what trades <laughs> were not made, yeah. um, and then obviously the work that he's doing in city building uh, currently. Um, but uh, to tell me about uh, you know him as as, as a leader. You. Yeah, he was, um, you know, you go through your career and if you're really fortunate, you have, you know, one or one uh, mentor that you, you know, you can always point to. I I've had a number. I've had, like I said earlier, I've had a number of people that have just been incredibly supportive of me. Tom and Selmy, Bob Hunter, Ian Clark, um, way back in my early insurance days was a guy named Roger Aquin. Um, I've had lots of really great support. But there have been three kind of key people in all of this for me, um, and, and certainly one of them is Richard. And I really felt like I grew up kind of corporately at Richard's knee. I'd, uh, he took an early interest in me. He, um, he certainly worked with Tom and those others that I mentioned to help develop me as a leader and always thought of me that way, always kind of promoted me in, um, in that context, always encouraged me to think about leadership as a discipline, as a, as a study, right, mm -hmm. a career study. And really fostered that in our whole organization, frankly. Certainly after I left, he went even to greater lengths. He had you know, built out uh, kind of an executive, almost finishing school inside of MLSC, and he leaned on his executive and other leaders in the business to help him execute that. Um, he ran book clubs all the time and everything else. But you know, he was, he was the one that promoted me to the executive table. Um, he, he did something that not very many people realized, but um, you know, with Tom's blessing, he actually took me out from under Tom. Tom had a broad swath of responsibility at those times, and I was getting great value out of Tom, of course. He's a great leader in and of himself, but Richard wanted to spend more time with me, so for a year he plucked me out, and I reported directly to Richard on all of that, and that just gave me a chance to learn a little bit more about what it meant to be uh, a CEO every day, and he gave me more time privately than maybe he would have ordinarily for that reason. Um, you know, I'd ask him questions like, what's it mean to, you know, what's what does it mean to run a board? Like, how, do, how does that work? And mm -hmm. how do you spend your time in your role? And, and uh, he invited, he was at the time doing some, uh, he was executive in residence one of the years before I left at Windsor. And so he invited me down to speak to the class and I got a chance to kind of work on my messaging as a leader in that context. So he was really great. He really, you know, the highest expression of it was he just, uh, he's, I said, you, I said, I'd like to do some advanced study. And, and he said, okay, um, uh, that's fine. You, you know, we'll pay for an MBA. Uh, go and research which one you'd like to do, and 
and we'll take that on for you. Uh, is, but it has to be in Canada. So I came back to him a week later and I said, um, I said, I want to go to Harvard. <laughs> and he said, I told you it had to be in Canada. And I said, it's not an MBA program. It's an executive general manager's program. And, you know, the advantage for you is I'm only going to be out of the business really for four or five months as opposed to two years. Um, you know, you're going to get all of all the things that come with me working full time still. And I'm just going to basically have a short sabbatical in one year. That's it. So I talked him into it. And so, so he sent me off to the Harvard Executive General Managers Program, and um, uh, I know I wasn't the only one that benefited from that because I think he sent uh, Dave Hopkinson off to uh, Harvard at one point later, and and others perhaps I don't know. But he was just really great, and continues to be someone I talk to all the time. I um, I don't see him as much as I'd like to anymore, but we just literally had breakfast two weeks ago, and we get together and catch up and compare notes and talk a little bit about leadership. Nice. The other guy is. Um, is Joe Bailey. He was my CEO of the Dolphins, and okay. uh, Joe's retired now, and um, he lives in Phoenix. But um, I, I go down to Joe's place and visit with he and his wife, Charlotte, and uh, I literally sit at the kitchen table, and I talk to Joe for two days, and I take notes. Like, mm -hmm. he just, uh, he just, he's, he's, you know, still retired. I think he's 75 this year. He's, he's a student. He's always been a student of the industry, and he tells me things I've never heard of before, stuff that he read, you know, weeks prior, and he's just very current. But he's also, he's kind of rooted in great, you know, great background. He worked 19 years with the Dallas Cowboys. He's had a career in the executive search business, so he knows what great leaders look like, and he knows how they think and how broad gauge they are. And then he was five years, almost five years as the CEO of the Dolphins, and he's just got a lot to share. So I literally go see him once a year, and. I let him beat me at golf, and uh, <laughs> and he just spills out knowledge, and I literally sit there and write it down. Wow. Well, let's go south of the border. After MLSC, you end up with uh, the Panthers mm -hmm. um, as their CMO for, for a couple of years. Um, you know, tell me as a guy who's lived all his life north of the border, why does hockey work down there? Well, I'm not sure it does, actually. Okay. I, I'm, I'm not sure it really does. I mean... Um, you know, if you're an owner of a sports team, a sports franchise, you're, you're, buying, into, um, you're buying into a very exclusive club, and, and it doesn't matter what league it is. I mean, the NFL is arguably more exclusive than the NHL, but nonetheless, they're all very exclusive clubs. Sure. And they're, you know, they're populated today with largely billionaires, and so that's fairly unique. And the scarceness, the collectability of that is relevant to its value, of course. So... Um, what that really means is you don't necessarily need to be running at an operating profit for your value to increase over time. And so um, it works, I suppose, in the context of the increasing value of a professional franchise. You know, the, the revenues of the NHL have gone up over 10 years from about 400 million annually to 4 billion. And so if you're a franchise holder in that league over that period of time, of course you've done well on the enterprise value of your league yeah. and, and as a franchise holder in it. But from an operating standpoint, it, it's hellacious. It's really difficult. And, yeah. and there's just, um, in those markets, those destination sunshine markets, there's just so much else to do that's pulling at a fan. And if you're not a particularly good team either, that's a problem. And yeah. it's hard to attract great players down into that marketplace. And there's a whole bunch of things that go with it. So, you know, in the two, I would say the two years that I worked for the Panthers, um, those were two of the most professionally difficult years of my life. Um, you know, there's something about living in South Florida that's very good for the soul. Um, sure. You know, the, the blue sky and palm trees are great. But um, 
it was a hard thing professionally. I also went down to work for a guy that I really enjoyed and, and um, a guy named Jeff Kogan. And he hired me to come down there and work as his right hand. And shortly after I got there, he exited. And I ended up working with another fellow who, frankly, we just didn't have the same values and, and didn't, um, didn't think the same way about people. And I'd had, you know, I'd had this wonderful experience working for this very pur purpose-driven, values-based, people-oriented leader in Richard. Mm -hmm. And then I went down to Florida and I didn't have that same experience there. And it was really frustrating for me. And uh, I ended up, frankly, getting fired out of there. And it was one of the best days of my career because oh, wow. I was... I was so, I was so upset about what I was having to, what I and the team were having to put up with every day. Um, it was not a comment on the ownership directly, but I certainly was not aligned with my leader. And I realized in that moment just how important it is to pick your leader uh, as you get um, as you move along. So, um, yeah. So he he let me go, and I was really pleased that he did that. I had some time off. I uh, went climbing. I, uh, I did some consulting work. I worked for a brief time with the United States uh, U.S. Bobsled and Skeleton. Oh, wow. Uh, I went to the uh, Torino Olympics as the executive director of U.S. Bobsled and Skeleton. And, uh, and then I met Joe Bailey. And Joe was a guy that uh, had been at the Dolphins at that point for a year and had a, had a mandate, uh, according to Wayne Huizinga, to kind of change the operation and to think about it differently. And so I became... Um, I had an opportunity in that with Joe, which I really loved. And you knew football was going to work in the States. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, the Dolphins are to that market like the Leafs are here, yeah, right? They sure. talk about them 365, and they suffer along with them. They still do. Yeah. Um, we had one winning year out of four while I was there, and it was 2008. <laughs> and I'll always remember it because I was in the, um, I was in the suite. We, we were playing... Uh, the Jets on the very last day of the regular season and it and it was between us and the Jets. I think that was a year Brady was hurt. And so the Patriots were out of it. And we had to beat the Jets in New York to go to the playoffs. And I was in the suite and um, Ted Ginn caught the winning touchdown in I think in the fourth quarter. And uh, my first hug when that happened was the owner, Wayne Huizinga. <laughs> and uh, so I had Wayne in my arms uh, for that moment. And that's my memory of our one winning season. So. That's fantastic. Yeah. You, listen, you, you talked about values-based leadership um, in a values-based organization. Um, you know, from an outsider looking in, you know, I take a look, you know, from a sports perspective, you, you want to win games from a business perspective. You want to increase uh, value, whether it's for the owner or whether it's for the shareholders. Um, why, why does purpose-driven value-based leadership, like why did it matter to you? Why did it make a, a big difference for you? Mm. Um, I, I think, you know, I guess it goes back to how you're raised. I mean, it starts there. If you, if you have those things in your life inside your family, then... Um, then those things make sense to you in your professional life. Mm -hmm. So um, I had those things in, in our house. You know, my mom and dad were kind of rooted in, in that context. And, you know, we, we certainly had a strong sense of right and wrong and a strong sense of values in, in, in our house. And, and so um, I would say Richard was the first one to express it uh, at a high level to me in a business context. And not just to me, but to our whole organization. You know, we had a mission and values. We had... We had uh, a, a strong understanding of what our values were as an organization. We could express them. Um, you know, things like being good members of our community, 
were important to Maple Leaf Sports under Richard's leadership. Winning was certainly important, although frankly it was the one we struggled with the most, but we knew it was important to our fans and, and to our ownership you know, stakeholders. Um, but Richard talked every day as a leader about values, and then when he promoted uh, me into an opportunity to be on that executive team, he talked to us all the time about our responsibility to mission and values and, and to make sure that we were you know, demonstrably good leaders in that context inside the organization. So it just made sense to me. It just um, it really resonated with me. It was all part of, uh, like I said, all part of Richard's um, kind of encouragement for me as being a you know to be a good student of leadership. And then you, uh, you know, with that kind of grounding over almost seven years, it stays with you. And um, especially if you feel like you've had success in it, I suppose. And I certainly felt like Richard and we, uh, as an executive team by extension, I felt like we built a great organization and. To this day, I think um, it's been through it's been through a lot, and it's been through several uh, versions of leadership now. But I still think it's probably one of the world leaders in sports and entertainment right now. And and um, and so you know, it just stays with you. And uh, I looked for it when I signed on to work for the Panthers, and I thought like I'd found it in the guy that I agreed to work with. And then when he left, I lost it. Yeah. And so. Part of the reason I struggled with my time at the Panthers was because I didn't think that leader had the same values I did. Mm-hmm. When you when you don't have alignment on that, it gets to be a problem. With Joe, it was easy. Um, you know, we were less a values-driven organization because Joe, I would say Joe inherited a, an ethos there that, frankly, largely revolved around Don Shula's legacy on the football side, mm-hmm. and Joe was trying to espouse a, a values position for the business side. But what Richard did really well, and what I think we're starting to do here already, is we're building out a culture that, um, again, is is rooted in the types of things that um, uh, the types of things that you would expect. You know, integrity and and uh, accountability and excellence. And frankly, we just had a meeting before you walked in, and we talked a little bit about the importance of fun in the context of our expressing our values. And um, again, all of these things are lessons first from Richard and. And certainly recently from from Joe Bailey, you know, my time at the COC was also a great test of that theory. And, um, you know, again, it's no mystery now, but we had a uh, we had a president uh, and chairperson who did not have strong values in that context. And it put me and us in the organization in a very difficult place. And uh, and and in the end, when it got to be really challenging, um, what we all did under Trisha's leadership is retreat to the values of the Olympic movement. Wow. And, uh, and I really think that, you know, again, Trisha's leadership and, and, uh, and our focus on those things in that moment kind of got us through that tough time with Marcel. So, so going from um, the Miami Dolphins to uh, the Canadian Olympic Committee, um, you know, I can see, you know, on, on one hand with, with professional sports, from both the sports and business side, I can sort of, okay, that's the end goal, right? You need to you need to win games, you want to win a championship. On the business side, you continually need to increase revenues, increase share, and, and things of that nature. On the Olympic side, there's, you know, you're competing against the world, but yes, you want to win medals. You want to, quote, unquote, own the podium. Um, and is there any... You know, so on the business side, is is there anything on on that side that you're also looking oh, to absolutely. move the needle on? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the challenge of the Olympic Committee was um, 
it's funny. I, I, I can remember interviewing with the board, and to this day, I know they would tell you this was true. So I, I met in the first uh, meeting with the, with the board, I met with the five members of the selection committee. And I was well prepared, and uh, I decided in that moment I wanted the job. And, um, and so I walk into what ended up being about an hour and a half, two hour meeting. And at some point, kind of deep into the two hours, I said, um, look, if you're looking for someone who grew up a diehard Olympic fan and was kind of dyed in the wool, you know, always wanted to work in the Olympic movement, I'm sorry I'm not your guy. Like, I, I've always loved sport and I've always loved the Olympics, but I can't say I grew up mad passionate about it. It wasn't my ultimate job. So if, you, if that's one of your criteria, I'm not your guy. But what I see here is that you have a business problem and you have a brand problem that I think I can help you with. And the fundamental thing for me, that, that was just before Vancouver. That's when that interview happened. Mm -hmm. And the fundamental challenge for me was I thought that that Olympic brand should be a lot more important to the country and a lot cooler, a lot younger than it seemed to me to be in that moment. Um, and, and I thought that if we could do those things, if we could contemporize the brand and if we could make it in its own way more relevant, then we could turn that into business success. And then I went away back to Miami and then Vancouver happened and that gave us a springboard to really start to redefine it. And we really worked hard in those days to kind of honor that opportunity and not to miss it. So, you know, the experience of Vancouver was special for Canadians. I think most Canadians that looked in on it or were fortunate enough to be there. Um, you know, we had our best games ever. We had our best winter games in the history of winter games. Um, and the right guy scored the right goal in overtime and yes. we won the right gold medal, right? The, a lot of things lined up there. And so um, it's funny because I can remember, like, I showed up for my new gig. I got hired after that, and I showed up in May. And uh, it's a long story, but, uh, you know, I, I can remember friends saying to me, um, listen, this is really great, but you're kind of a day late and a dollar short. Like, you know, you missed the party, man. The it's over, right? Happen. And I'm like, yeah, easy. Like, to the contrary, I think what we now have is, is a runway here to really turn this into something different. And I really believe we did that. You know, we... Um, I keep saying we because there were so many. I mean, and I include Marcel in that, frankly. I mean, for all of his challenges, he had a vision for what that was meant to be. And it started with attracting, you know, solid people to, to uh, kind of help with, articulate that. And then we hired people like Allison Walker, who today leads at Bell, and a guy named Dennis Kim, who was, uh, by many accounts, the guy who invented the red mitten at Vanock. And um, we worked with Andrea Shaw and initially Dave Cobb, who had been on the team at Vanock that sold all those many millions of partnerships. And we just, we put together a really nice group and we worked like mad for two years to, you know, convince the marketing partners that had been so instrumental in building out that runway for Vancouver to stay with us and that we were going to redefine what it meant to be the Canadian Olympic Committee in a non-home games environment. And so we got big early commitments from Jim Little at RBC at the time and uh, from Loring Finney and George Cope and Wade at Bell and um, certainly from um, from uh, Gord Cunningham at RBC and HBC. They all came with us, right? And so, um, you know, those deals kind of set the table for everything else. And in that moment, um, uh, we started to win in the boardroom, not just on the field of play. Mm -hmm. And all that money fueled our investment in sport. So we increased quite proudly. We increased our investment in sport from like 50 million to 
to over 200 million in my last year there, last quad. And, uh, and all that money and investment that we put in as, as brought to us from our marketing partner relationships, they produced our best ever summer games in London and Rio and our best ever winter games in Sochi and Pyeongchang. Yeah. Those are the best results on the field of play the Canadian Olympic Committee's ever had, team has ever had. And, uh, and that had everything I like to think, had everything to do with the marketing relationships that we built and the, the amount of money we were able to generate. So um, there is a correlation in this country in particular with marketing partnership support. And uh, I, certainly, I certainly know that they will continue with that focus and it'll serve them well. So. Yeah. I've had this conversation with, with many people. I've, I've had fortunate enough to have uh, Olympic athletes on the show um, as, as well. And, and as much success as, as there has been, it seems that there, there's still a lot more that, that, that can mm -hmm. be done. What is it that corporate Canada um, needs to do? Because it seems that that's where the money's going to come from, right? Um, or, or, or maybe just the federal government. What needs to be done by these, yeah. these stakeholders in Canada to, to jump on board? And, because what does it mean for the country to have, to quote unquote, own the podium? Yeah, I think it's huge for the country. I really do, and I, I think it's it's one of the um, it's one of the renewable uh, it's one of the renewable moments uh, for a nation is to be successful on an Olympic stage on a global platform. And and again, our athletes have just um, done amazingly well over the last kind of eight years and all of that. And I also think it's fair to say that corporate Canada has done well. Both both have done well. Federal government and um, to a lesser degree, some of the provinces, not all, but some have done well to contribute to sport and to make it a priority in their, in their, um, in, in their financial support. But corporate Canada has done a lot. And, you know, certainly, again, in the years that I was involved there, corporate Canada delivered over a quarter of a billion dollars just in sponsorship of the Canadian Olympic Committee and team, by extension, just in pure sponsorship dollars. That's to say nothing of activation money spent around their connection to the, to the team. That's to say nothing of athlete endorsements, um, many of whom put additional monies in. So um, I think it could be fairly said that corporate Canada has done well and there will never be enough, right? There will yeah. never be enough. What I do think is imperative now, and now I can say it freely because I don't have to sit in the chair every day, but the federal government has not made an adjustment to core funding for sport in this country in some time. It has uh, made on the podium a priority for sure, and we should be appreciative of that. Um, and uh, on the podium really speaks to the apex of the athlete journey, right? It's, it's about basically providing the money that, that funds the highest achieving athletes in this country where we have the most likelihood to win medals. But what's essential to the um, continued kind of growth, development, and sustainability of sport at the national team level is the strength of the national sport federations. And those organizations are getting squeezed. They don't always have a lot of expertise inside their four walls to drive incremental revenues to, for themselves. And core funding, again, from federal government has not, has not increased substantially in, in the last decade or more. And if that doesn't change, then you're going to see some sports just not be able to keep it up. So again, you'd like to think you can keep corporate Canada engaged in the absence of a home games. One of the reasons we were pushing so hard on Calgary was because I knew that was another moment 
Uh, we all understood that if we could get Calgary on board and actually host again, we could reset, create new expectation, and change the trajectory again. But the challenge without a home games is you've got to do this. And government's not doing that. Corporate Canada won't follow unless they see lead in that way and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And you really need a moment for the country to rally around. So I, for one, was really disappointed that Calgary didn't stay in the mix. Yeah. Okay, so how do we get to where we are today? Running, so you're, run, you're running the Olympics. Yeah, you're running the Olympics. Right. You know, sports that we could see on TV, we can understand. Even if we don't understand bobsleigh, we can get it when we see it. You know, even though we don't understand synchronized swimming, we've all been in a pool. Um, how do you how do you get to esports? How do you, how does how does someone who's been in traditional for so long with some of the biggest teams, uh, arguably with with the NFL, one of the biggest leagues worldwide, to this thing where you know we, we think of kids playing in their mom's basement. Hmm. Um. So in 2016, I decided that my time with the Olympic Committee was close to being up. Uh, I would committed to myself and, in fact, to the board when I took the role on that I would stay until Rio. And uh, I let some of my closer colleagues like Joe and others know that I was going to be open to new suggestions. But um, I really felt like after Rio was time and that I had done as much as I could do. And frankly, I had stayed in it long enough. You know, it, I was 52, I guess, at the time. And, um, you know, there's a danger sometimes of staying too long, even if it's great fun and if you love the gig. And it's by far, to this day, it's the best gig I've ever had. Like, it's just for all the reasons that you would imagine. Um, but I got a call from Joe, actually, who was now back in the search business. And, um, and his colleague, Danny, who I also knew, and they, they said, um, there's a company in California... Um, they're called Activision Blizzard. I don't know whether you've ever heard of them or not, but um, they've, they've launched this game called Overwatch, and um, they aspire to build a 100-year sport league around it. And as a result, um, they're looking for a commissioner, and we think you'd be perfect for it, so we want to send you out there to meet with them. So I, I did a little bit of research, but I, I really didn't know what it was. And, but I said, okay, if you, if you think that's a good idea. So off I went to California. And of course, I prepped for the meeting and did a lot of research about what esports was and, and how it was on the come. And I was really quite surprised by what I was reading. And then I went out there and met with them, and I was blown away. Like uh, everybody I met, like just terrific organization, values based. Um, I met with all the Blizzard leadership the first time I went down there, and then later the Activision people. And I just loved it. And and I really saw the potential in it. And when they told me what they were doing with the Overwatch League, it made perfect sense to me. And they told me they were imagining that they were going to go speak to the you know traditional sports owners like the Crafts and the Will Ponds and the Anschutz and so again it all made sense to me and uh, I stayed with it. We talked for four or five months and it got down to myself and another guy and in the end they decided to fill the roles internally and neither one of us got the chance. Oh, wow. But if they had offered me the job, I was taking it. I was going to California. So anyway, uh, it didn't work out, and then I watched with interest as they kind of got ready to stand up the league in their first year, and I was talking to Danny and Joe a little bit about it, but um, I wasn't really thinking about it again. And then Sheldon calls me out of the blue in May and, and says, you know, we're looking at something. Would you mind coming over? I, I could use your advice. And I walk in, and he shows me that they're planning to pitch for the Toronto franchise in the Overwatch League, and I'm like, well, that's really great. I think this is a great idea, except you're not the business model. If, 
if you really think you want this, then you need to know that you're going to be in tough because Maple Leaf Sports is the business model. Like they want to be partnered with the biggest traditional sports organizations and in this town we know who that is. So Sheldon, I'd, I'd be happy to help you on this, but I'm telling you, you should probably go qualify whether they're in the game or not because if they are, doesn't mean you can't win, but I think you're in tough. Anyway, um, we figured out over a couple of weeks that they were not, that they didn't want it and we decided we did. And so off the corner of my desk, um, I agreed that I would work with Sheldon. I really didn't do much. I'd, I showed up for a couple of meetings, but I showed up for the key meeting. Mm. And uh, all, of my, all of my associates that I'd met at Activision Blizzard two years prior were there and we remembered each other and we had a great connection at that time. So of course we did now. And, and so again, you never know how things are gonna work out. But um, I find myself in, in the right moment with the right people having in, in its own way, life having allowed me to build the great relationships that I have over time and I get invited into these conversations and then here I am. And I told Sheldon and Adam, who still works in the business with me, I, I said, look, I'm interested in this, but I'm not leaving the Olympic Committee to join your upstart eSport company until you actually have an asset. So if we're successful and we win the franchise, then we'll talk. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, I'll help you with that if you want. And so that's what we did, and then we won. And then I was kind of cooked. Yeah. <laughs> so I literally went to Russia on vacation, and, um, and by the time I got back, it was all done. Uh, Sheldon and Adam had come together with the Kimmels, and, and here we are. So. And was was that was it as simple as that? That okay, listen, I I know Sheldon, I've met with these guys at Blizzard, so I, I get it. Was it was it as simple as yeah. that, or was it? Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, 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 it was, and for a couple of reasons. Uh, again, I said in 2016, I was basically of the mind it was time to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was really glad I stayed because we had a great couple of years in the business, and then we went off to Korea, and we had the best ever Winter Games we had had. And so I was really pleased to have kind of that sure. bookended opportunity as well. But I certainly knew that it was time to go. And I just, I was in conversations with a number of other organizations at the same time I met Sheldon, um, except they were, they weren't all perfect for one reason or another. They never are, but one, you know, two of them were in the United States. One was in Canada. I wasn't sure, you know, about all of them in a different way. As it turned out, by the time I got to the point where I wanted to make a decision to do this, everything else had fallen away. Mm. So um, it was just time. And, you know, I don't think I realized it in the very moment. But um, a couple of months later, actually, um, I think I made a comment in an interview. You know, when you get to be kind of of my vintage, <laughs> you, can, um, you can stay where you're comfortable. Yeah. And, and, and that could be great. And, you know, I certainly was very comfortable and very, um, you know, we as a team and as a board successful around the Olympic Committee. And it would have been a really easy place to stay. We just opened new offices. It's great. Um, but I wanted to do more. And the risk of staying where you're comfortable when you get to be my mm. age is you run the risk of bumping up against being irrelevant. Mm. And I was worried that if I stayed too much longer, that it would just be downside and and that, you know, frankly, at some moment, I might not be as relevant as I was in the role. And when you're, it's one thing when you're not relevant when you're 28, when you're 58, you're not relevant, that's a problem. Yeah. So what I thought Sheldon was offering was an opportunity to be relevant in my career and in an industry that was kind of emerging and where, frankly, I thought I could bring value. And, and that's, that's a great opportunity to kind of energize and, and to do something new and exciting and to build a team from scratch. And, all those things are fun. So, and frankly, something that I've always enjoyed and I think I've had some success with. So, it made perfect sense to me. 
Out, outside of the product, is, is everything else the same? Yeah, the principles are the same. Yeah, yeah they really are. Uh, intuitive question. So, um, you know, uh, this morning I, I did two, uh, or this morning I did the marketing pitch. Uh, I met with a potential candidate for a job. I came back into a brand meeting. Uh, I'm doing this with you, which is part of, you know, media as, as you serve in, in the industry and in, in senior levels. Um, you know, I'll, I'll fly off on a plane and go to league meetings. All the same things, right? It doesn't yeah. you could be you could describe that day and you could be in any one of the NBA, the NHL, the NFL. That's that's what it is. Yeah. Same thing. And we're building, uh, you know, a company from scratch. So I'm spending a lot of time on people and culture and values, and um, and uh, we're spending a lot of time on our brands right now. And uh, again, all the same things, all the same principles, and the rest of it's just kind of hard work. So. So tell me about tell me about the team. The first season, what have you learned? What what successes have have you guys achieved? Well, first of all, we did the absolute right thing in uh, in buying Splice. Mm-hmm. Um, so we bought this uh, company out of Rochester, New York, called Splice, and they had been in the space, endemic to the space, for four years, and and had great uh, success, frankly, building out winning teams. So, um, you know, acquiring Splice and putting Marty, the CEO of that company, in charge of our team operations was about the best thing I ever could have done because I don't need to worry a lick about any of the things that I don't know, honestly. Marty knows that stuff. The people around Marty know that stuff. And my job is to actually, you know, worry about the rest of it and help Marty with whatever he needs help with, but to let him do his job. And I tell him all the time, your job is to win. And uh, to his credit, um, our teams are doing that. So our, um, right now we've got a top three Call of Duty team in the world, mm-hmm. our Overwatch Team finished uh, five and two in the first stage, and that put us in third out of twenty teams. Uh, and in our, your first year, in our first amazing, year, yeah. and our European League of Legends team, um, which we basically built in the eleventh hour because we picked that franchise up late. Uh, Marty went out and cobbled a team together, and they're in third out of ten teams and heading into the playoffs this weekend as well. And even our um, even our Spanish, uh, we set up a. An academy, for lack of a better term, a, a minor league operation around our League of Legends team in Spain, and uh, and they're going to the finals in their league. And the, the Spanish league is actually the strongest minor league in the world. So, um, yeah, we feel really great about the progress that we're making. It's way early, of course. Um, as I said off air, you know, there's some changes coming to the patches in the Overwatch game that we're not sure we're ready for. So we're we're kind of muddling through that right now. But to your point, the principles are the same. Um, and in the business side, you know, uh, build out a build out a position around mission, vision, and values. Hire great people inside that that construct. Let them do their jobs, and that's what we're doing. And for whatever six months feels like, it you know we're underway. So it feels good. Where what do you see the future of 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 this space, this business, this industry? I think it's mind blowingly huge, and I don't even think we have a sense of it. Um, I'll give you an example of a conversation I was having this morning. Have you noticed what CVS is doing right now around March Madness? You can, if you have a VR setup in your house, you can sit courtside and watch those games. Yes, yes. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. So now imagine that technology, such as it is, and the proliferation of that technology. I mean, it's not unrealistic to think that at some moment, say inside of a five-year window, all of us have a VR technology in our house, just like we have a set-top box right now around our TV. Like. It's not inconceivable that there will be a number of VR and AR executions that necessitate a piece of equipment that sits in our house and just sits on a stand somewhere ready to be used as you see fit. Principally, I think, driven by the sports and entertainment complex, right? Mm. 
So now take that VR technology and imagine what it could be if you're sitting, uh, if, if you're a fan of esports. So imagine you're a player on the Toronto Defiant and I'm sitting at home watching a broadcast or I'm watching on Twitch or whatever the digital platform of the day is. And I'm able to put my VR headset on. I'm able to choose you as my player. Maybe you play the tank position in Overwatch League and I'm actually going to get to experience the game from a virtual reality perspective inside the game. Hmm. Imagine what that could be like. My point is the technology in all of this is moving so fast. I don't think we can even imagine oh, no. You know, don't assume for a moment that the way we're consuming the game today is the way that we're going to watch the game even three years from now. And technology being what it is and the pace of it as such, um, I just think this thing's going to explode. And our whole thesis in building this business is that the money will follow the eyeballs, right? That we're on the very, very front end of a hockey stick here. And that if we just do our reps, you know, do what we're supposed to do, build out a good business with great people, be rooted in our values, focused on our mission every day and our vision for what this business can be. And we just do the things that are necessary to be successful in that. At some point, the switch is going to flip and we're going to be in just the right place to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. And that when I say that, I mean, we're because we will have done all the right things, we'll have the strongest teams. We'll be in the best leagues in the world. We'll be great builders of content. We'll be fantastic um, purveyors of facility and we'll be creating experience for our fans that they can live inside of. And all of that builds a massive community for a next generation of fan. And that's what we're doing. And it's fun every day. I'm getting excited. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> you know, um, Chris, man, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Yeah, it's fun to talk about our business and fun to talk about the fun we're having in it, frankly. So.